You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Our scripture passage today is Philippians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Uh, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, we'll be, uh, you can find that passage on page 982. <clears throat> when Matt invited me to share with you this morning, a few months back, actually uh, back in September, he knew I would need a lot of time to get ready. Um, after praying about it for a bit, I said yes. My thinking at that time was that Matt and John work very hard throughout the year, and that this particular year has been really taxing on them, as well as on Steve, our other elder. If I can pitch in one Sunday and give them a breather, why not? Actually, this particular Sunday is one in which uh, pulpits are frequently filled by non-pastors, as the period from September to the end of the year, and especially the Advent season, is one of the most intense times of year uh, for pastors. So even as I'm here this morning, uh, other non-pastors in other churches are doing the same. <clears throat> but then after I said yes to Matt, I started to reflect on other last sermons of the year that I've heard over the years. And it occurred to me that a common theme on such Sundays is for the preacher to do a retrospective on the year that is coming to a close to comment on the highs and the lows of the previous 52 weeks and to try to put them into some sort of gospel perspective. And so I, along with perhaps hundreds of non-pastors in churches all across the country and maybe even around the world, are left with the task of trying to make sense of 2020. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Matt. Um, but what a year 2020 has been, right? It started out, if you remember, with tensions running high between the U.S. and Iran after an airstrike killed a senior Iranian general. And it's ending with the U.S. blaming Iran for a missile attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad as tensions with Iran are once again running high. At the start of the year, more than 20 candidates were campaigning for the Democratic nomination for president with former Vice President Joe Biden finishing no better than fourth in the Iowa caucus and fifth in the New Hampshire primary. But on January 20th of 2021, he will become our 46th president, we think. In January of 2020, George Floyd worked as a, as a bouncer at a Minneapolis nightclub, where an off-duty police officer named Derek Chauvin also picked up a few hours on the side. Their lives would tragically intersect in May. At the beginning of January, news about a novel coronavirus from China um, was just finding its way into the world section of a few newspapers. But by the end of January, the first cases were appearing in the United States. Few people at that time knew who Dr. Anthony Fauci was, the idea of wearing a mask in public was virtually unthinkable, and the notion that by December more than 300,000 Americans and 1.5 million people around the world would have died directly or indirectly 
due to COVID-19, incomprehensible. And in so many ways, that just scratches the surface of the year 2020. And those are just the macro issues, if you will, that we've dealt with in this past year. Many of us have, have had our own unique challenges throughout the past year, whether it be marriage or family brokenness, difficult work challenges, unemployment or underemployment, broken friendships, crises of faith, and so much more. Yes, 2020 has given us a lot to think about, hasn't it? And that's what I'd like us to focus on this morning and to consider. What do we think about? What are the thoughts that occupy our mind, that serve as the soundtrack of our days? Because the things that occupy our mind form and shape us as people. Proverbs 4.23 instructs us to keep your heart or your mind with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or as the NIV puts it, everything you do flows from it. Our tendency is to limit the transformative work that God is doing in us, the process of sanctification that he is working in us, to our words and our actions. But the transformative work that God is doing in us encompasses all of who we are, including our minds. We read in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Today we will look at this transformative work that God is doing in our minds by focusing on Philippians 4 verses 1 through 9, with particular attention to verses 6 through 9. Follow along with me as I read from this book that we love, the very word of God, Philippians 4 verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, be present this morning in this moment with the one who speaks and with all who listen, that we would proclaim your greatness and your power, that we would declare your love and your grace, and that we would give you all praise and glory and honor. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. 
One of the themes that we see woven throughout Scripture is the radical change that takes place in us when God takes hold of our life. In Ezekiel, we read that our hearts of stone are changed into hearts of flesh. Paul talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new. And here in Philippians 4, we see Paul applying that same theme to our minds, setting aside one set of thoughts associated with the old people we used to be and replacing them with a new set of thoughts based on the new people we are in Jesus Christ. And those are the two points that we'll be looking at today, thoughts to set aside and thoughts to take hold of. Now, a trained pastor with a seminary education would have much more compelling titles for those two points, but for this morning, we'll go with that. First, verse 4 calls us to set aside anxious thoughts. Do not be anxious about anything. I don't think I have to explain to anybody after the year that we've come through what anxious thoughts are. Few of us are strangers to anxiety. It creeps in over big things and little things, gnawing away at our insides. Someone graphically described anxiety as a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel in our mind into which all other thoughts are drained. <clears throat> we now often hear phrases like being stressed out or having a panic attack. Christian psychiatrists Frank Minerth and Paul Meyer say that anxiety is the most common mental condition they encounter at their network of clinics across the country. And that has only increased, I'm sure, during this past year. There are any number of factors that can cause or lead to anxiety. It could be physical conditions. It could be mental conditions. It could be a side effect of certain medications that we take. But most typically, anxiety is caused by stress. It could be stress at work. It could be stress at school. It could be stress in marriage or family relationships or from being single. There could be financial stress. There could be stress from an emotional trauma, such as the death of a loved one. There could be stress from global occurrences, occurrences and political issues, like maybe an election. There could be stress from unpredictable or uncertain world events, such as a pandemic. The list could go on and on. Maybe you're even getting anxious hearing me list all the reasons for anxiety. Sometimes we can't even identify any particular reason why we feel anxious, but it's there, nagging away at our insides, turning every hopeful thought into despair. So what do we do? Well, many turn to psychological counseling, seeking deeper insights into their anxieties or coping mechanisms on how to deal with it. Like almost any profession, there are good counselors and bad counselors. There are counselors that can only offer worldly advice, and there are counselors who can provide real biblical guidance. We are blessed in this region and even within this church with a number of counselors who are deeply rooted in Christ, and it is from that perspective that they bring people healing and hope. Do not be ashamed and do not hesitate to seek such people out. For help. Others may turn to medication. Again, we're blessed to live in a time in which there are medications that can assist people in clearing their thoughts and slowing their minds down 
And praise God for that. Please don't hear what I'm saying to be an anti-counseling or anti-medication message. It most certainly is not. What I am saying is that such measures are supplemental to the primary means of addressing anxious thoughts that we see here in verse 6, and that is prayer. Look with me again at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In his book, Mindscape, Timothy Whitmer explains that there are four ways in which these words call us to pray. First, we're called to pray specifically. Paul uses different words for prayer in verse 6. The first is a general word for prayer, but the second word, supplication, refers to an urgent, specific plea. This is reinforced when he adds, let your requests be made known to God. This should not be thought of as being selfish or self-focused. Think of the Lord's Prayer. It begins with praise to our Father in heaven and ends with his kingdom and glory and power. But in the middle, Jesus teaches us to ask God to meet our most important personal needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Requests for daily provision, forgiveness, and protection are quite personal, and we are urged to bring them to the Lord regularly. This also includes things we are prone to worry about. Do not be reluctant to cry out to the Lord about anything and everything. Second, these words call us to pray remembering God's goodness. You'll also notice that Paul tells us to pray with thanksgiving. Praying with thanksgiving requires us to remember all of the good things the Lord has done for us and is doing for us now. After all, there are more things in your mind than just your worries. Worries might be in the foreground at the moment, but there are many other things for which we can remember and for which we can be thankful. This isn't easy because our natural tendency is to focus our worries, focus on our worries rather than to give thanks. And if you remember that quote about the, the channel that worry and anxiety cuts into our mind, that everything else seems to fall into that. When you are worried, bring your cares to the Lord, but also remember his kindness and goodness to you now and in the past. Third, these words call us to pray, expecting an answer. As uh, many have said, sometimes uh, the answer the Lord gives can be yes, no, not yet, or sometimes the hardest one to accept, it's not for you to know. We might, not, we might always like a yes, but the Lord, our Heavenly Father, knows what is best for us. And he will not give us anything that isn't ultimately for our good. And then lastly, these words call us to pray, expecting that God will want your response too. As we pray, the Lord might make it clear that there's something we need to do. For example, if you're worried about a relationship, God might lead you to have a conversation with the person with whom you're having difficulties. He will certainly impress upon you the need to apply for jobs if you're unemployed or underemployed. New health challenges might require a change in diet. 
the start of an exercise program, or other lifestyle changes. Be ready to be directed toward the things you might need to do regarding your situation. This leading will always be in accordance with God's Word. If you feel that God is calling you to do something that is beyond you, pray about that as well. If He's calling you to do something, He will also give you His Spirit to do it. So pray for the Spirit to help you and direct you so that you can follow Jesus wherever He calls you to go and whatever He calls you to do. One other point I'd like to make before we move on, maybe it's a, a bit of a side point, but I think it's important. We need to bear in mind here that Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, not just to the individual Christians who happen to be living in that city. He's calling that church, he's calling our church to not be anxious, but to make our requests known to God. And at least one request that we can see uh, sprinkled throughout this letter deals with unity. Starting right in chapter 1, Paul begins to address this theme of unity in verse 27. <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, Paul further develops this theme of unity, starting at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then we come here to chapter 4, where he addresses a specific dispute that has arisen between two sisters in the faith, Euodia and Syntyche, two saints who have been on the front lines with Paul in ministering for the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet are now at odds with each other. And the instruction that we find here in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 is, I believe, a continuation of Paul's counsel to them on how to remedy the situation. He calls them in verse 2, to agree in the Lord, and in verse 4, to rejoice in him always, to get their eyes off of themselves and each other and get their eyes back on the Lord. In verse 5, he instructs them, them to be reasonable, and then in verses 6 and 7, to set aside their anxious thoughts and pray together and to be united once again in the faith. Virtually everywhere you look, you can see the strain in that uh, 2020 has caused, or perhaps the strain that 2020 has revealed. We see it in families. We see it in schools. We see it politically and racially in our country. And we see it in churches. Yes, even this church. And while there may, may be any number of measures we can take to restore and strengthen unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, the starting point has to be, needs to be, prayer. And here, I'll put in a plug for the bi-monthly prayer meetings that Matt talked about earlier, the second and fourth Sundays of each month. Spoiler alert, starting on January 10th, we're going to move the starting time for that back to 6.30. Yes, we most certainly pray for individual needs that uh, come to our attention through the prayer cards or through other means. <clears throat> 
Yes, we pray for the needs of our region, our nation, and our world. But we also have that time together simply to come together and pray. Few things bring about a greater sense of unity among brothers and sisters than praying together. And we can use that time to pray specifically for unity within our body, to pray that any relationship strains that may exist would be replaced with reconciliation and peace. To pray for Matt and John and Steve to shepherd us and lead us in ways that promote unity. To pray for our deacons as they lead us in tangibly loving and serving each other. As we enter a new year, let me encourage you, let me encourage us to be united together as a praying people. Finally, see with me in verse 7 the result of setting aside our anxious thoughts and bringing them to God in prayer. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As I spill water all over myself. The peace that Paul speaks of here is the peace that comes from the God who's never subject to anxiety because he's the sovereign, omnipotent creator and Lord of the universe. Nothing takes him by surprise, not even anything that happened in 2020. He's never unsure about how any situation is going to turn out. This is the peace that Jesus promised, not as the world gives. It is humanly not explainable, but praise God, it is real. Note that this peace stands guard like a sentry over our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are in intimate, personal union with him. And to get to us, anxiety has to go through Jesus. So what God promises here isn't just a quick fix where prayer is a technique that will suddenly bring you calm until you get through the crisis. Paul is calling us to an ongoing, deepening, intimate relationship with God where we seek to please him with all of our thoughts and words and deeds. And then in a time of trial, those lines of communication with God are open. We draw near to God. We remember his grace to us in Christ Jesus. We pour out our heart to him. And the result is his peace guards our hearts and our minds. One last thing before I move on to our second point. Right now, there may be some of you, in fact, I'm sure there are some of you uh, who are listening, who are overwhelmed with anxiety, who feel as if it is crushing them, and it feels as if your faith is hanging by a thread. If that is you, let me encourage you with these words of hope from Adam Ford, who some of you may know is the creator of the Babylon Bee, and who for the last number of years has lived with generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and social anxiety. Here's what Adam Ford says. We live a life in which our feelings actively try to kill us. It's a strange ex existence. We know better than most that feelings can be filthy, stinking liars. While subjective feelings try to do us in, the objective truth of the gospel is what sustains us. It's our life raft. The fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world, sent his son to die on a cross for us, taking upon himself the punishment for our sins, 
granting us eternal life and perfect bliss with him in heaven. This is what sustains us through many dark times. I don't know how I could go on without this truth sustaining me. And then Adam Ford goes on to say this. This is the anchor of our soul, that our status before God is secure because it's not dependent on our turbulent feelings. It's dependent on the finished work of Christ. And when God looks at us, even when we're being smothered by a wet anxiety blanket, he sees a beloved child perfectly clothed in the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, hear that. Believe that. Cling to that. Cling to him. Pray to him specifically, remembering his goodness and his love. Ask that he would enable you to set aside the anxious thoughts that fill your mind and to give you his peace. So if anxious thoughts are what we are to set aside, what are the thoughts that we are to take hold of? Let's look then at our second point as we move to verses 8 and 9. Paul provides eight attributes for the Christian mind to think of and to be attuned to. In the interest of time, I'll be moving through these rather quickly. If you'd like to receive the explanations and the biblical references that I'll be mentioning, uh, you can just send an email to the church office. We'll be glad to get that out to you. First, we're called to think of whatever is true. That is, thoughts, deeds, and disposition that are in accord with reality. In 1 John 3.33, Jesus said, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And in John 17, 17, Jesus prays for us in this way, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. In our day, so many decisions, indeed so much of life, seems to be based on pragmatism or emotion. Even back in my day, there was a popular song that went, don't hold back. If it feels good, do it. That spirit is even stronger today, but we are called to test everything against God's word, which is true in any aid. Second, whatever is honorable, whatever is respectful or dignified, that which inspires awe. It's the same word that we find in 1 Timothy 3 verse 4 of how an elder should manage his household, and then in verses 8 and 11 to describe deacons and deaconesses. This means that Christians are to take life seriously. We're not to be silly goof-offs who treat life as a perpetual joke. We live in light of eternity, keeping in mind the uncertainty of this short life and the reality of heaven and hell. This doesn't mean that we can't appreciate good humor, and our security in Jesus should give us a certain lightness to our days. But we should also carry ourselves in a way that communicates to a lost world that they must stand before a holy God someday soon. Third, whatever is just, that which is righteous and innocent in the eyes of God. We find this in Psalm 89:14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. To think on what is right means to think on the holy nature of God, especially as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and to model our lives after him. Fourth, whatever is pure, that which is free from defilement. In 1 Timothy 4.12, 
Paul encourages Timothy to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. As followers of Christ, we must say no no to anything which betrays our identity as God's set-apart people and say no to all forms of impurity and to set our minds on that which is holy instead. Fifth, whatever is lovely. This is the only time in the New Testament that this particular Greek word is used, and it refers to that which is pleasing, acceptable, and worthy of embrace. Sixth, whatever is commendable. Again, this is the only time in the New Testament that this particular word is used, and it refers to that which is worthy or is deserving of a good reputation. The last two qualities that we see here serve as a kind of summary of the previous six. Seventh, we are to think of anything which is excellent, that which is of moral virtue. It's listed by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 as the first quality we are to add to our faith as a means to confirm that we truly belong to Christ. And then eighth and lastly, if there is anything worthy of praise. Of course, this certainly refers to God who is worthy of all of our praise, but it also refers to our thoughts about other people, both inside the church and in the world, by being gracious, appreciative, and affirming. Notice throughout this verse the words, whatever, or if there is anything. As our friends at Ligonier Ministries point out, Paul is inviting Christians to think on the excellent things that they find, not just in Scripture, but in the surrounding culture as well. We have an explicit teaching here that believers are free to enjoy the good things around us, even if they do not come from an explicitly Christian source. We're to appreciate the truth and beauty that we find in the arts, in literature, science, politics, music, technology, and so on, produced by believers and unbelievers alike. At the same time, we must also be careful about what we feed our minds. If we allow things into our lives which promote and celebrate greed, lust, sexual impurity, crude language, violence, hatred, or anything else not pleasing to God, we cannot, we will not grow in holiness. In his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, Pastor Kent Hughes writes this, It is impossible for any Christian who spends the bulk of his evenings, month after month, week upon week, day in and day out, watching the major TV networks or contemporary videos to have a Christian mind. This is always true of all Christians in every situation. End of quote. Strong words for sure, but words to consider nonetheless. Now, this is not a call for us to do like many did in the 80s, smashing their secular record albums and listening to nothing but Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. Please don't do that. But it is a call to be honest with ourselves about what we take into our minds on on a regular basis. And in my experience, we tend to give ourselves far too much credit for the shows and movies and podcasts that we think we can handle. Really ask yourselves, and hopefully you have one or two brothers and sisters in your life who can really ask you out of love if the shows and movies that you watch and the podcasts that you listen to are merely feeding that former self that we used to be before Christ, or 
Do they truly help you to consider what is true and honorable, what is just and pure, what is lovely and commendable, what is excellent and worthy of praise? Paul then calls the Philippians in verse 9 to put those thoughts into action by thinking of the example Paul himself set before them. In many of his letters, Paul exhorts the readers to look at him and follow his example. We are unbelievably blessed here at Liberty to have godly examples such as Matt, John, and Steve, people whose lives we would do well to emulate. I've been a follower of Christ longer than any of them have been alive, and yet I've learned so much from each of them, not just when they're up here in front of us on a Sunday morning, but when I um, interact with them and I get glimpses into their marriages and their families, as I hear in their voices their love of God, their love for Liberty Church, and their concern for the lost. Just as the New Testament churches had Paul as an example, I'm grateful that we have Matt, John, and Steve to be examples for us. If we look at these verses as a whole then, we see a type of pattern emerge that fits everything together. When we have anxious thoughts, and we will, we take them to the Lord in prayer. As we do so, the peace of God enters into our hearts and minds, guarding us from such thoughts. Only this peace of God enables us to think about what is just and true and honorable and so on, and then to put them into practice. And what is promised for us if we do this? Well, remember back in verse 7, as we set aside our anxious thoughts through prayers and supplications, we receive the peace of God. But here in verse 9, as our thought life conforms to God's will, and as we put those thoughts into action, we receive not merely the peace of God, which is an amazing blessing in and of itself, but we receive the God of peace. We receive God himself. How so? Well, let's look again at the qualities that we see in verse 8. Whatever is true, Jesus is the true one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever is honorable, Jesus is the honorable one. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Whatever is just, Jesus is the just and righteous one. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Whatever is pure, Jesus is the pure one. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Whatever is lovely, Jesus is the lovely one. Indeed, Jesus is love, and we are called to abide in his love. Whatever is commendable, Jesus is the commendable and worthy one, worthy to receive all of our praise. If there is any excellence, Jesus is the excellent one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If there is anything worthy of praise, Jesus is the worthy one, worthy of all praise and glory and honor. When we think of these qualities, we receive the God of peace because our minds are directed to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Look to him. Receive him. Cry out to him in your fears and doubts. Let him transform your heart and your mind. As we prepare to bid 2020 farewell and welcome 2021 with all of the hopes and uncertainties that a new year brings, 
Let us be a people who submit our anxious thoughts to God, who have hearts and eyes that are open to see all that is good and right and beautiful in the world around us. And may the God of peace himself be with us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for welcoming us into your presence, even in our anxious thoughts and fears. By the power of your Spirit, set our minds on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our merciful Savior and mighty Lord, and grant us the peace that can only be found in him. We pray in his tender and triumphant name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.